Ah, thanks to our friends at Earth Matters and uh, good morning listeners to this week's news from the drug war front. My name is Jeff and my co-presenter, as usual, is Marion. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jeffrey. Good morning, listeners. How are we all? I hope Another grey day, isn't it? No, it's a dreadful yeah. day. It's, yeah. I mean, it's not not cold, not hot, but it's just the clouds yeah. Yeah, make a- it miserable, yeah? We've had some spring. We had three days of spring. Snippets here and there where yeah, you think, yeah. oh, spring's here. And people are mowing lawns in between rainy periods, so it smells like spring, oh, and that's nice. It smells a lot of mown grass, yeah, yeah. that's true. It makes it, it's, amazing, um, it's amazing how much your senses really control, like other senses, your vision, mm. your, uh, your sense of smell, how much that controls how you're feeling about the world and and what's going on, yeah, and your attitude to the rest of the day. If you feel like getting up and going out and doing things, if you've got a sunny day, it's much easier oh, to do it. Absolutely. But if it's cloudy or rainy or miserable, it's really a day for sitting inside and doing jigsaw puzzles, really, isn't it? I actually think the climate change or whatever you want to call it has, you know, seems to have changed the regularity of the seasons, you know. Yeah, well... Canberra used to have definitive yes, seasons. Yeah, John that liked. was the thing about yeah. it. Was always um, a pleasure to welcome spring. Yeah, September yes. the first was spring. Footy finals, day. Floriad would Absolutely. come, and be into spring and summer and, to come. Yeah. And now it's kind of all over the place. I I don't feel like we've had a summer for three years, Jeffrey. No, yeah, I don't think we have. We've had barely um, any. Days where temp well in Canberra and excuse me, barely any days where we've had temperatures up above the high third in the high thirties. Yeah, um, can't recall. And certainly not a one. stretch of that would tell us it was summer. A yeah. stretch of weather that would say, well, okay, this is summer. Well, imagine our people in Lismore and Northern Rivers and oh, those sort of places. They well, must just yeah, I feel shattered. Just. Dreadful and constantly having to move their animals and well, their save what belongings they can. Box, yeah, whole box and dice everything up to higher ground or into the town or it's just atrocious and I do feel for them in you know many ways because I know a lot of people in particular moved from Canberra yes. up to that area in in order to maximise the temperature and the, yeah. the locality. Better lifestyle, better weather. Yeah, it yeah. was much relaxed and cruisy and better place to grow pot if that was what yeah. you were doing. Plenty of... Um, uh, plenty of backwoods, if you like, or plenty of jungly type places, yep. or subtropical, um, subtropical rainforest. Yep. Yeah, so there were plenty of places to go, but then lots of mozzies to go, mosquitoes to go along with it, and lots of people have moved from big cities as well and up the price yeah. of property and re- A huge rental amounts and, of. Yeah. Property. I mean, think. The properties up around um, Bar and Bay oh, must be monumental. Absolutely, and uh, inland from Bar and Bay, up on the um, on the tablelands on the mountains, well, up in uh, Federal, I think is one of the little towns up on the inland road from uh, Lismore to Bar and Bay. It's got a beautiful view. Yeah, but. You know, it would just be flooded at the moment. There's a just yeah, it's a shame. Uh, it's yeah, really but sad. expensive properties now. Oh, you just, my word! 
I know there are a lot of um, musos that moved up there because yeah. somebody I, has got um, a studio up there where they've been recording. Be a good community for all artists. Yeah. Absolutely. No, it's sad times and we need to really start thinking about mitigation. And you know, Oh, yes, it's just... Yeah. Can't just pretend everything's going to return to normal. It's not going to happen. <laughs> no, it isn't. And, um, you know, we have to get used to whatever the new normal is, Jeff, don't we? That's right. Um, less, our listeners will know that anyway. Yeah, that's true. They're living it, yeah. Yeah, I think most people have realised by now that uh, things are amiss. Yep. All right, welcome listeners to today's edition of News from the Drug War Front, brought to you for over 15 years now on 2XX, so we've been mm. going for a while. Uh, brought to you by Karma, the Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimisation and Advocacy and The Connection, which is Canberra's peer-based drug and alcohol service for First Nations uh, clients. Now, uh, news from the drug war front pr- promotes a broad array of services that Karma provides as a peer-based harm reduction uh, model service, um, and you can expand on that in a sec, Matt. Um, we also report on stories that are relevant to illicit drug users from Australia and around the world and um, hopefully promote interesting discussion between Marion and I um, about the need for education, about the need for some different approaches to dealing with the harms caused by problematic drug use in a world of prohibition. Indeed, a difficult thing enough, although things are changing. True. Um, and I'll just give listeners a brief overview because most people would know, Karma and The Connection provide a wide range of services like advocacy, peer treatment support, opioid maintenance treatment or um, advocacy to hepatitis C treatment, education, art therapy, support groups and rehab services, dealing with stigma and discrimination, which is something that we often talk about, um, but we've got some good news to report, particularly from the CANTEST um, this week that will actually let people know that really it is people are saying that they're feeling very welcomed when they go to get yes. their drugs tested. And as a great. result, I think it's nearly doubled in the number of people who brought their drugs in to be tested, and that's really good. We want to see that succeed, that pilot program. Yes, the more people that use yes. the service, the better. Cause well, the information coming out of it has been so useful. Oh, it's, it's really well worth going to and well worth finding out what you are taking yep. because uh, we're constantly saying to people, you know, you can always use more, you can never use less, but if you have an idea of what's in whatever it is mm. you have bought, a, a better difference. idea, then you don't have to take such a – it's not such a big risk um, – swallowing, ingesting in whichever way is yep. preferable to you. Well, it makes um, sense, Marion, doesn't it? You, absolutely. You want um, information about any other product that you yeah. are going to spend money on. Why is this different? You know, well, because of the black market. Yeah. But, um, well, a black market, it makes a huge difference to it. But the just the uh, quality control that we can... Um, we can actually have some kind of control over ourselves simply by finding out what's in the what's drugs. What's in it, and it makes a huge difference. Yeah. And we, you know, I think we should be really pleased. A lot of the stories we've got this week actually do relate to the change internationally mm. in from the war on drugs attitude and the propaganda that goes 
along with that into a different kind of world, which is a far more tolerant world when it comes to drugs, not necessarily when it comes to interactions between humans. I mean, mm. you can't ignore the <laughs> war between Ukraine and, no. and Putin. I've got to say, it's not between Russia and the Ukraine. No, it's, it's between Putin. the yeah. Ukraine and Putin, yeah. as far as I... And it's Well, really as far as the yeah. news says, anyway. Yeah. Anyway, um, to continue, so Karma and the Connection are harm reduction services. They're co-located at uh, Bill Connon Churches Centre at Shop 17, Level 154, Benjamin Way. The drop-in hours are 10 to 4 p.m., uh, 10 a.m., sorry, to 4 p.m. Monday to Friday, and you can make contact on 6253 or email karma at info at and we can repeat that later or if people want to know anything yep. more about uh, contacting Karma via the interblog, then they can ring 6253 Well, yeah, you can find because out whether... Te- telephone yeah. Uh, calls are free these days, so it's not hard to, you no. know, it might be hard to find a phone box, but uh, once you get there, if the phone is working, the telephone call, yeah, yeah. particularly the local call, is free. I've noticed that. That's a good thing. It was a really good, but then you There's get not that Optus, many phone boxes Optus now. and Telstra, yeah, that aren't working. And then we you have know, that data been breach. And then yeah. yeah, which is a real yeah, problem. Yeah, that's not... That's dropping the ball. Yeah. All right. Uh, news from the drug war front. As I said before, reports on news stories that are relevant to illicit drug users. Many of the articles featured in this program come from other sources, including the mainstream media. The contents of this uh, broadcast slash podcast do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Karma and the Connection. Karma does not condone, but nor, nor does it condemn drug use, and we do not promote illegal activity. However, we do recognise that drug use happens and will continue to happen regardless of laws and uh, United Nations conventions. As such, Karma focuses on harm reduction messages, drug treatment support services, advocacy and community development. We seek to reduce the harms caused uh, with, by drug use and its criminalisation through the provision of programs that foster community development and the delivery of person-centred holistic health care. And essentially, Karma advocates for equity of health service delivery for all people, which is not unreasonable Absolutely. expectation, I would have thought, Marion. But um, it's it's been a long haul to extend the, the range of services Absolutely. that Karma can and provide. And it sounds like the, with every day, it becomes more and more normalised yeah, to treat drug users as people. human beings yeah. who have rights and responsibilities like the rest of the citizens. And should be treated as such, yeah. And should be treated with the respect that 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 they deserve. Now, that means that you have, as a drug user, you have an obligation to behave in the way that you wish wish to be treated. So, you know, you get what you give. Yeah. What goes around comes around. All of those old-fashioned, you know, sayings are ring true. If you don't behave like a human being, if you don't treat others like human beings who are due respect, you will be treated. That's right. You'll be treated exactly the same way. So, yeah, we just urge people to just behave like a human being, treat Yes, I was going to mention something totally apropos of being treated like that, the increase 
um, the research they've done recently, there's been a 22% increase in sexual assaults. What? And on young women, which mm. is really so speaking it's of respect, yeah. it's not a good art look. Yeah. The one thing I did want to mention before we went further, the uh, opioid overdose recognition response with naloxone workshops have now have a permanent day when they will be held, which is uh, the first Tuesday of every month at the Early Morning Centre at 69 Northbourne Avenue. Uh, to book a place or make inquiries, call Dave or Damo on the Karma number, that's 62533643. And I just urge people to do that course, to get paid for doing it, and you walk away with the capacity to bring people back from an overdose or, I might add, if something else is going on and um, opioids are involved or the person that you are concerned about has used opioids as well, it's going it to... will reverse the effects yep. of the opioid, which will expose what's really happening. And yep. some people, um, ha- I mean, some people get other kinds of unwellness, if oh, you absolutely. like, or illness, yeah. but it's covered up by the use of opioids or the fact that they've used opioids is um, uh, impacts how to treat whatever else is going on. It it clouds the diagnosis. So if you reverse the opioid impact or reverse the the existence, if you like, or the attachment of the opioids to to the uh, receptors, then the the diagnosis of what's really happening can be assessed and that's really important because drug users, like everybody else, have cannot just be dismissed, like their illnesses cannot just be dismissed as a result of their drugs. Well, but if we you have get rid of to... the effect of, the, of an opioid, for instance, then whatever else is happening will be exposed yeah. and they can be treated as for whatever ails them not just dismissed as drug users, therefore... The Naloxone Program is one of the proudest achievements of Karma and it saved dozens, if not hundreds, who knows how many um, lives. We don't hear about how many people it saves, do we? We just know that it It does. does, Yeah, yeah? I know personally several people who have been brought back from the edge. But you don't hear about the successes, you do hear about the... Failures, yeah, um, and it's not of the op- of the naloxone program. It's failure to breathe, failure yeah. to or people respond, using a loan to and operate or there. not. Yes, yeah. not being able to have access yep. to that nixoid or that puffer. Yeah, nasal spray. Yeah, yep. yep. But yeah, could, I couldn't agree more, Marion. It's a wonderful program, and if you yep. haven't done it. Um, give Dave or Damo a call on the Karma number and investigate and uh, put your name down. Yeah, do. And do attend it. I really can't say that often enough. Yeah, no, very important. All right, uh, we'll go to our first song. I don't think we've played uh, Needle and the Damage Done for a long time, Marion, but it's one very of Very long time. Neil yeah. Young's um, iconic um, songs. I think it was written after his guitarist uh, overdosed on heroin back in the day when he was the user himself. Anyway, okay. Needle and the Damage Done by Neil Young. Yeah. Yeah. 
lovely baby can I have someone that's just so right. Yeah. saying, you know, that when we listen to the lyrics, what great poets these people oh, really absolutely. are. Yes. Yep. We'll do this Australia Hit Free C by 2030. Might have to do it. Throwing things around or, a bit. Yeah, yeah well, sure. Continue. I finish sing it up. song because yeah. I love the man. I Talks about this point of care testing, which is good because that's going to be. Um, I've seen the needle and the damage done. A little part of it in everyone. But every junkie's like a. I think we had it a cu- couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think we'd applaud that too, wouldn't we, Jeffrey? It's a very just, poignant song, isn't oh, it? Oh, very know? much. Just the first two lines just grab you, you know. I caught you knocking on the cellar door. I love you, baby. Can I have some more? Yeah. It's just you think, yeah, that's so – that used to be so right. Yeah. Um, and uh, we're always uh, always thinking in the breaks or when the songs are playing, you have to acknowledge – the the competency or the you know the lyricism of the the words the poetry if yeah, you like that's in, invested in this just yeah and how it remains moving. meaningful for yeah years for, and years well and years. that that was produced what nineteen seventies yeah, maybe yeah I think early early seventies seventy two maybe I think yeah. Harvest came out. Um, I remember buying that album. It was one of the first albums I ever yeah, bought. Harvest, and, yeah, Harvest, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Um, look, I thought we'd do this um, song, uh, song, story <laughs> from the um, Pennington Institute's The Bulletin, and it's about the um, aspiration for Australia to be hep C by free. 2030. Hep, hep C free, yeah, yeah. by 2030. So um, we might have to split it between uh, the news and finish it after the yeah. national news at 11. But anyway, we'll, I'll kick it off. With highly effective new treatments available since 2016, Australia is committed to eliminate hepatitis C by 2030. Katie Hornshaw explains that outreach to vulnerable populations will need to be ramped up if we are to hit that target. And that's been one of the aspirations of the Burnett um, program, Eliminate Hep C um, Australia. Uh, anyway, in, in 2016, Australia celebrated a huge health victory with the arrival of the direct-acting antiviral drugs, or DAAs, which we've talked yeah, about we've many talked times. Yeah, we've talked about quite a lot. For the treatment of hepatitis C. Unlike previous therapies, the interferon-based ones, which were less reliable and often produced a number of distressing side effects, the direct-acting antivirals are well-tolerated and provide a cure in 95% of recipients. Pretty extraordinary, well, really. But, yeah, We've always said how phenomenal that is, yeah, what and what that means for yeah. people, particularly who want to donate organs. Yeah, well, to be able to donate your liver when you've had hepatitis is just phenomenal. I was stunned when I'm you first concerned. told me that. Yeah, that was amazing. So effective that you. Yep. Get- it actually the, cures yeah. your liver, and that's incredible. It is amazing. The Australian government was quick to commit to the ambitious target of complete elimination of hepatitis C by 2030, but the achievement of that goal will require a health sector-wide approach to extend diagnosis and treatment services to high-risk communities such as First Nations people, people in prison, and people with insecure housing. 
Aside from the logistical challenges of reaching people in vulnerable communities, the stigma associated with the diagnosis can render at-risk people reluctant to engage with treatment. And I've found that too. People often don't want to talk about their hep C or, you know, oh, I'll deal with that later or, you know. Yeah. And that's the trouble. You keep saying that later, later, later and yeah. then you get cirrhosis. And you end or, up feeling like a nag, yeah, feeling yeah. like you just, if I say that one more time, I'm going to shoot yeah. myself. Yeah, good point. Um Quote, it's always at the back of your mind, said Sarah, 34, from Melbourne, who's lived uh, experience of injecting drug use. But when you think about facing judgmental healthcare workers, having to hide it from your employers or your family thinking less of you, sometimes, well, it's simply just easier not to know. Hepatitis C is primarily spread through the sharing of injecting equipment, tattoo needles and razors. In Australia, they say approximately 232,000 people are still living with hep C, many of whom inject drugs. Professor Jason Greebley, who heads the research team for the National Hepatitis C Point of Care Testing Program at the Kirby Institute in New South Wales, believes Australia is capable of bringing this number to zero by 2030. In 2016 alone, 30,000 people were treated with direct-acting antivirals. Jason believes the potential solution to the issue of reaching high-risk people lies in the new point-of-care testing program, which is mm, essentially... That's really the, important. Well, instead of having to try and find an actual vein, you yes. can just do a fingerprint um, yeah, blood that, test. Yeah, look, and that's really important when you think about the number of people who have been using by injection for years. That have finding trouble, a, yeah. Finding a vein is an absolute issue. Yeah, so it's a huge breakthrough. Yeah. Uh, so it's designed to allow for a one-stop, sh- uh, one-stop shop treatment and testing, which significantly reduces the travel and time burden involved in getting diagnosed and initiated into treatment. So it is actually a, a significant breakthrough. Indeed. Um, I couldn't believe how easy it was, says Mark, not his real name, who is 50, and was shocked to discover he had hepatitis C after his GP encouraged him to take a test last year. Although Mark had injected drugs for many years, he hadn't noticed any symptoms and had assumed that he was in the clear. He's quoted as saying, I'm actually glad I didn't find out till recently because it meant I was instantly treated with the new medications. I went from freaking out that I had what I thought was a life-threatening illness to finding out I was about to be cured of it, all in the same GP visit. But there are still major obstacles that must be negotiated if Australia is to meet its target. The rate of treatment uptake has been steadily dropping, with only 6,500 people inducted onto the antiviral medications in 2021. Jason explains, quote, The decline is happening because the population that remain to be treated are those with multiple categories categories of vulnerability and they are harder to reach this is reflected in the data from the annual needle and syringe program national report which shows that the proportion of people of aboriginal and torres strait islander descent who have hepatitis c has increased from 18 percent of total australian cases in 2017 to 25 percent Wow. In 2021, that's a big increase. Big increase. Over the same period, the percentage reporting incarceration in the uh, 12 months prior to the survey increased from 11% of all respondents to 13%. Peter Garver, Peer Health Clinic and Outreach Worker at Peer Based Harm Reduction WA, Western Australia, 
stresses the importance of adopting or of adapting to the needs of vulnerable communities. Quote, in Western Australia, geographic distances and travel times to centralised services are a significant barrier. Um, At PBHRWA, which is Peer Health Clinic Harm Reduction, Western Australia, we employ peer case management workers and peer educators to engage effectively with the most vulnerable populations. And that's such a breakthrough, a, isn't yeah. it, to be talking to a peer? It is. And that's, you know, in quotes, that's a peer is a person with lived experience, yes. just yeah. in case, for those who don't know. So... Uh, um, She goes on to say, our fixed site clinics are co-located with our needle and syringe exchanges and can provide testing and treatment in-house without the need to refer people to other agencies. To reach people who are not currently accessing treatment, uh, testing and treatment, we need to go where they are, not expect them to make an appointment to come and see Mm. us, which makes perfect Perfect sense. sense, And I think... Canberra, in particular, been very mindful of that. Um, point of care testing, quote, is really an exciting development, says Jason, because it provides an opportunity for people to receive on-the-spot diagnosis and treatment when they attend needle and syringe access points. Opioid substitution therapy, such as methadone treatment, or at their alcohol and drug counselling service. This means patients can be offered both test and treatment when they make contact with their usual services. Margaret Randall of uh, Hepatitis South Australia second, uh, seconds the need to increase diagnostic and treatment uptake in vulnerable communities, which include experiencing people experiencing homelessness and people who continue to inject drugs. Quote, but it's not as simple as increasing access points she could she cautions, quote, we won't see rates of treatment, the rates of treatment we're hoping for until we address the issue of stigma. Many people in vulnerable populations avoid health services altogether because they don't want to be pigeonholed as an injecting drug user. Once that's on your file, you'll be asked about it every time you go to the doctor, mm. end quote. Penny Moore, NSP, peer educator at Hepatitis South Australia, confirms the problem is widespread. She's quoted as saying a lot of people from these types of backgrounds have zero trust in the health sector. They've had negative experiences in the past where they felt judged or been denied health care based on their drug use status. And when you combine that with the lack of urgency because most people with Hep C don't feel sick, and are busy just trying to get by, the chances of them turning up for diagnosis are very low. Yeah. Now, that's um, that's a really big change, isn't well, it? Well, it is. It's a huge change in attitude, and by the sound of it, that article, it's becoming Australia-wide. Yep. We've been very aware of it on the radio show because we have. we've been talking about it yeah, forever. Yeah, Teach Treat program. With- and had great success with that program. It's Absolutely. It's been a... a Yes, it's been a wonder and very exciting to hear the results from that. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we've got the 11 o'clock news uh, coming up, listeners, so we shall be back after that. All right, it's coming up on four minutes after 11, and welcome back to this week's news from the drug war front with Jeff and Marion. 
from uh, Studio One at TWXFM 98.3. Your public radio. People-powered radio. That's right. Indeed. Um, just going to mention a couple of things. Uh, it's Poverty Week, 16th or 22nd of October. Yeah, Anti-Poverty Week. and the end- Anti-Poverty Week. <laughs> yeah, we've poverty we've week. got enough poverty, yeah. so we'll go for anti-poverty. And it's interesting because I think 50 years ago, you mentioned off air, Jeffrey, 50 years ago, is it 50 years since we had Bob Hawke in Parliament? Maybe 40. He said that there'd be no child living in, in poverty, poverty. by 1990. And, or, yeah. and I, look, I can't help but applaud the intention, but the road to hell is paved, as we know, with, with good, good intentions. intentions. And to make a, uh, make a statement like that showed um, certainly a, a spirit of... Wishing for it to be true, but not necessarily. Uh, it didn't go along with any strategies for how they were going to manage that. Um, and I think now the whole idea of just having one anti-poverty week is great that we be aware of the mm-hmm. issue of poverty, but it uh, it's a lot it, more. It, it, it's a lot more than entrenched. one week of, and yeah. it's not a celebratory issue. No. It is. It's demoralising, it's depressing, it's not good, it's sad and it's not something that can be solved by an anti-poverty week. No. We need strategies and we need a community that wants poverty gone because we shouldn't in Australia be suffering from poverty or the extent of poverty that we have. No. In fact, worldwide there. It seems to me that we have the capacity and we have the resources worldwide to be able to get rid of poverty, even if it's individual by individual. And that's been shown to be true. If you get uh, resources or strategies to individuals, then you can actually develop a community of people who are no longer living in um, poverty simply by providing one woman with money straight into her account so she can buy a cow, so she can actually... Do you know what I mean, Geoffrey? It can be as simple as that. Well, it's certainly more effective than stage three tax cuts skewed to Uh, the wealthy who don't need it. And trickle-down economics doesn't yep. simply work. I'll just give you a flavour of what ACOS are saying in their press release. They're saying it's going to be held across Australia, uh, 16th to 22nd October. It's all about supporting the community to understand poverty and take collective action to end it. And they're calling on Australian parliamentarians to commit to halving child poverty by 2030. And that would bring us in line with the international human rights commitments and sustainable development goals. It says, with one in six Australian children growing up in poverty, we urgently need appropriate measures in place to ensure that all families can afford secure housing and cover the cost of essentials. And I'd say that's a critical component of poverty. Indeed. um, The fact that property is so much an investment vehicle for people, you know, to make money. money, That they have a house to live in and a house that they make available for B&B or for, you know. Or for, yeah, just capital appreciation. Yeah, or, or, yeah. It's and it, I just find that unbearable when you think about it. That there are people who are completely homeless, and there are houses there that are at enormous rates. You know, at leasing rates that are huge, simply because they're available for holiday tenure. Yeah, and uh, but the majority of the time they're at, they're vacant. 
Yeah, and that's it's just yeah. not right. Well, um, that sort of segues quite nicely into this um, story from Canada. It's uh, actually an editorial from the Star newspaper tackling the opioid crisis October the 8th is by the editorial board. Yeah. And first uh, subheading is treating and preventing opioid addiction means ensuring the accessibility of affordable housing, food and supports for physical and mental health. So one of the things I like about Canada is the approach, uh, along with safe supply, is to look at the holistic picture, not just getting people into rehab or on on a program or something. No. It's looking at their housing situation, their employment, their training, you know, just... That's right. And in fact, you know, the indicators of health are not just the absence of disease, Jeff. And that's something that we need to acknowledge as a community or as a a population or as a country. Yeah, well said. Not just the absence of disease. Okay. The Star Editorial Board says pandemics are remembered not just for the problems they create, but for the ones that they reveal. The COVID-19 pandemic highlighted systemic failures in long-term care for example, and now it's revealing our total mishandling of problematic drug use. The Public Health Agency of Canada reports that during the first two years of the pandemic, opioid-related deaths increased 91% compared to the two years before. That's just staggering. That is, yeah. By way of explanation, the Public Health Agency states, quote, a number of factors may have contributed to a worsening of the overdose crisis over the course of the pandemic, including the increasingly toxic drug supply, increased feelings of isolation, stress and anxiety, and changes in the availability and accessibility of services for people who use drugs, end quote. These factors have exacerbated the crisis, but they all existed long before the pandemic. It's just that we failed to see or at least closed our eyes to them. Now that the pandemic has revealed them to us, it's time to act. To begin with, fentanyl began making its way into the illicit drug supply about a decade ago, and now, in 2022, it is involved in around 85% of opioid toxicity deaths. It's cut a swathe through the um, opiate-using community yeah, in North America. It's frightening. And of all such deaths, 81% involves exclusively non-pharmaceutical or black market opioids. These two statistics point us to two solutions. First, we need to regulate, rather than criminalise, all psychoactive drugs. And second, we ought to provide a safe supply of drugs to users here. here. And that's mm-hmm. what I like about the whole concept of safe supply, yep. Marion. People know what they're getting. They know it's not cut with dangerous, um, you know, additives or cutting agents. Yep. Or- and, of course, that leads us to talk about things like can test and making sure that we access that. But yes. anyway, continue with this article, Well, it's been a, a crucial... Um, a big part of it, yeah. yeah. Um, it says, um, yeah, those two solutions are, were retrospectively the core and urgent priorities identified by an expert, ta- expert task force last year. But so far, Ottawa, that's the federal parliament, has done relatively little towards making them a reality. The feds did approve British Columbia's application for an exemption from the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act and personal possession of small amounts of drugs will become legal in the province next year. There's no word yet, however, on whether Ottawa will approve Toronto's or Edmonton's applications for similar exemptions. I think the federal government's been slow, very reluctant to really push the boundaries, which I guess is... I I think it probably relies very heavily on whether the Prime Minister is prepared to announce it, because if it's a federal 
matter yep. in Canada. It's really falls under the purview of who is going to make the announcement and who's going to deal Carry with the, the backlash. Carry the responsibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a really good point. The Liberals voted against, that's the Conservatives, against the decriminalisation bill and illicit drugs will therefore remain illegal in most of Canada for the foreseeable future. As for safe supply... Ottawa has created and funded a number of pilot projects, but their strict protocols and limited enrolment result in many people still relying on the illicit drug trade. And Ottawa's efforts here too hardly... Ottawa's efforts here too hardly meet the task force recommendation for a national scaling up of safe supply. That said... Mental Health and Addictions Minister Carolyn Bennett did say recently, quote, we want to be able to get a place where there is a pharmaceutical-grade regulated supply of drugs. So perhaps Ottawa is finally ready to act on the task force recommendations. The Public Health Agency, was it? Uh, Public Health Agency. the Public Health Agency of Canada statement also stresses the importance of improving the availability and accessibility of services for drug users. But to be successful, these services, including treatment, need to address all the factors that result in problematic drug use. This leads us to the final element of the Public Health uh, Agency of Canada's statement, the significant role social and psychological factors like isolation, stress and anxiety play in the opioid crisis. And we probably should note that it is uh, Mental Health Month as well and that plays a big role in, uh, as I was just saying, in uh, stress and anxiety play in that factors like isolation, stress and anxiety play in the opioid crisis. Unfortunately, people often conceive of an addiction just like any other illness or injury. If that were true, then users could just attend rehab for a week or a month or a year and they'd be healed. But this isn't about treating a broken hip. It's about treating a broken spirit. As uh, a 2018 Statistics Canada study detailed, problematic opioid use is higher among those whose lives are stressful and those who suffer from poor mental or physical health, especially if their mental health needs are unmet and the accessibility of mental health care has been unevil, uneven at best. In addition to these psychological factors, social factors play a major role. Statistics Canada found higher rates of opioid use among people who are attached and those, sorry, who are unattached and those whose sense of community belonging is low. One's economic status within the community is also critical. As a 2022 Public Health Agency Canada study found, uh, that the opioid-related mortality rate was much higher among those in the lowest socioeconomic strata compared to those in the highest. Indeed, people here more frequently experience housing and food insecurity and nothing increases stress and anxiety more than wondering where your next meal is going to come from or if you have a home to eat it in. Consequently, 
Treating and preventing opioid addiction means ensuring the availability and accessibility of affordable housing, food and supportive communities, along with physical and mental health care. If we didn't know that before, we do now, since the pandemic has revealed it to it. Now it's up to us to act. And that's interesting, coming from Canada. Yeah. um, From Ottawa in particular, I think. That's where it comes from. That um, they're actually making uh, that uh, an absolute point, uh, an, if, an issue that they need to address themselves. We need a holistic approach. That don't there's we? no point. In, there is no one fix. No. Yeah, nothing that will fix one issue. It's got to be approached from every side, and it doesn't mean it doesn't mean a huge range of services need to be involved if the whole, as we were talking about in the hepatitis C um, you, hepatitis C can be treated at point of care yes and that is, and so can many of these issues be treated and that's one of the things that I think karma um, seeks to do by providing um, the services it provides, it seeks to assist people in whatever way they can Hmm. to either represent themselves or be represented or advocated on behalf of with other agencies or other services who provide what they require or what people need to live comfortably. And that's all we need is people being able to live comfortably. There are people who seek to be homeless, who are happy not to have a house or not to have a roof over their heads, if you like, or a place to call home. But there are many people who do not seek that, Mm. who in fact have lost their housing due to family breakdown, in particular um, partnership or or marriage breakdown. Yep, can Uh, happen for all sorts of reasons. There there are many reasons why people lose their security of housing tenure, um, which means that they're in a position where they are targets for violence, for uh, rorting, for rape, for, um, you know, I mean, many hmm. issues. And at the same time, they may well have people dependent upon them about whom they will equally worry twice as much yeah. because they are young people, they're children who cannot fend for themselves no matter what happens. And if they happen to use drugs and are confronted by things like community like youth and community services, then they will lose their children. It can turn ugly, yeah. So, I mean, they're in a dilemma, you know, no place to live and no way to get a place to live. But if if they expose themselves to service provision, then the mandatory reporting of their um, insecurity, if you like, of housing means that they are at a position where the service that they're attending is it's incumbent upon them to report them to community health services so that their children are not uh, are, well, or services government services are notified that the children are at risk and that's a real problem yeah. because they're at risk because of that inevitable circle or there the needs cycle to be reforms definitely yeah. It's like a snake swallowing its tail, Jeffrey. 
You know, there's no end to the issue because one thing leads to another and it just keeps turning. Anyway. All right, let's go to a song. Um, haven't played this in a long while. It's Alice in Chains and Junkhead.
All right, it's 25 minutes after 11. You're listening to news from the drug war front, brought to you by Karma. And uh, that was Alison Chains and Junkhead. And uh, we're heading off to probably the most um, important announcement um, coming out of the US in a long time. Um, it's in t- This piece is entitled uh, The Most Important Part of Joe Biden's Surprise Marijuana Announcement by Mary Jane Gibson, October the 8th, Vox.com. The scope of federal pardons is relatively limited, but descheduling the drug could be another story. I've already had feedback um, from people saying, make sure you point out Joe Biden wasn't always, um, uh, you know, progressive on this issue. And that's true. He was one of the architects of the um, infamous three strikes in your in crime bill and... Um, yeah, he's got a checkered history. In a surprise month just a move before the midterm elections, President Joe Biden announced Thursday that he's taking considerable steps to overhaul America's um, federal marijuana laws, including pardoning everyone convicted of simple marijuana possession at the federal level. The development was a surprise. Although Joe Biden campaigned on decriminalisation and expunging cannabis convictions, his administration has largely remained quiet on marijuana reform. Quote, as I've said before, no one should be in jail just for using or possessing marijuana, Biden tweeted. Today, I'm taking steps to end our failed approach. Allow me to lay them out. Biden's first step was to pardon all prior federal offences of simple marijuana possession. His reasoning was an odd to the many justice and equity discussions happening around cannabis arrests nationally. Quote, sending people to jail for simply possessing marijuana has upended too many lives for conduct that is legal in many states. That's before you address the clear racial disparities around prosecution and conviction. Today, we begin to right these wrongs, Biden tweeted. Second, he called for state governors to do the same at the state level. His third step is to initiate an administrative review of federal marijuana scheduling, the federal classification system that underlies the criminalisation of marijuana as a controlled substance at the federal level. Quote, we classify marijuana at the same level as heroin and more serious than fentanyl. It simply makes no sense, Biden wrote. After Biden's announcement, other agencies quickly followed suit with next steps. The Justice Department issued a statement that it will, quote, expeditiously administer the President's proclamation on pardons and work with the Department of Health and Human Services to launch a scientific review of how marijuana is scheduled under federal law. But was this announcement a massive leap forward in federal cannabis policy or is it more style than substance, an attempt to drum up support for Democrats ahead of the midterms? Here is a quick overview of Biden's action, federal cannabis policy and the administration's ever-evolving stance on marijuana legalisation. The next heading is, so just how many people did Biden pardon? Biden signed an executive order to pardon citizens and lawful permanent residents convicted of simple marijuana possession under federal law and DC statute. Simple possession occurs when a person has a small amount of a substance on their person or available for their own use. The New York Times reported that pardons will affect about 6,500 people convicted of simple marijuana possession between 1992 and 2021 under federal law, as well as thousands more under the DC Code. White House officials said on a call with reporters... 
That's a comparatively small number. It is when you think about the numbers of people oh, in prison drop in, in the, bucket. the United States. And over, I mean, 6,500 over a period of 30 years is not that, many. Not that no. much. Not many. Better than nothing. But it is. Um, that's a comparatively small number. Most convictions for simple possession occur under state and local laws. According to the ACLU, there were 8.2 million marijuana arrests between 2001 and 2010, 88% of them for simply having marijuana. The federal government often charges marijuana cases as conspiracies, meaning there was an agreement between two or more people to violate a federal drug law rather than simple possession. The New York Times reported that, according to US Sentencing Commission, only 92 people were sentenced on federal marijuana possession charges in 2017 out of nearly 20,000 drug convictions. Hmm. Biden's presidential authority is limited to issuing pardons for federal convictions. He can't overturn a record for a marijuana offence at the state or local level. However... Bowl PAC founder Justin Streckel, a long-time cannabis lobbyist in Washington, D.C., and the former political director for the National Organization for the Marijuana Laws, that's normal, says it's a step in the right direction, no matter how small. Quote, could Biden have gone further, he told Vox. Yes, but now citizens around the country can leverage that example to build pressure on state and local officials to follow in his footsteps, as some governors already have. It's like you were saying before, Marianne, every, every incremental step, step yeah. is... Baby steps yeah. all the time, yeah. baby steps. And as long build. as we're going forwards, that's what matters. Indeed. Yeah? Yeah. Providing an example and publicly, too, makes a big thing. It's actually what we hear, not necessarily what we see happening, but what we hear that makes a big difference to how much um, change is occurring. Well, especially or, in the US, the president speaks. Indeed. You know. And this tweeting, which Dodo... Uh, Trump used to Trump love, yeah. made popular, um, is a good way of getting to a lot uh, of people. the yeah. message out to yeah. a lot of people who would not read um, the mainstream media. Mm. Uh, Biden urged governors... Yeah, Biden urged governors to do as he did and review, review marijuana possession convictions at a state and local level as well. Some governors were far ahead of him. California's Gavin Newsom and Colorado's Jared Polis have already issued pardons for low-level cannabis convictions in their states. And in Illinois Governor... J.B. Pritzker expunged nearly half a million marijuana arrest records and pardoned thousands more at the end of 2020. And that in itself, Jeffrey, I think speaks to how much, I guess, Biden's actually catching up mm. with what's actually what's really happening on the ground. And I think probably encouraging other people, other governors, to do much the same thing. When Better we're talking about 6,200 at a federal level, but we're really, what, we're talking about half a million marijuana arrests in uh, Illinois? Yeah. That's a much larger figure, but it actually gives... 
It gives um, momentum action. And, yeah, yeah, some momentum to follow. Um, it, the, anyway, the article goes on. Wasn't there a bill to legalise cannabis? Does this mean weed is legal now? Hold on to your lighters. <laughs> you won't necessarily be able to spark up in the streets just yet, though cannabis is legal in some form in 37 states. Meanwhile, federal mar- marijuana legalisation has essentially been stopped in its tracks, in part because of complexities of adopting banking, regulation and criminal justice reform to accompany legal weed, even though public opinion, even among Republican voters, and state policies are on board with legalisation. However, under the Federal Controlled Substances Act, marijuana is classified as a Schedule One illegal drug with no medical uses, on par with heroin and LSD. Absolutely crazy. And that is crazy because we certainly know that in all three cases, marijuana, heroin and LSD, there are, have been um, medical uses or at least psychological reasons for it being made available. Indeed. And been shown to be so. Yes. Um, okay, and above fentanyl, which is Schedule 2, so the Schedule 1 of marijuana is higher than fentanyl, which is Schedule 2. It's almost hard to believe. Rescheduling marijuana for research. Sorry, Jeff, what? It's almost hard to believe, isn't it? Fentanyl, it fentanyl is. could be seen as... It's seen as less harmful than marijuana. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy when marijuana has killed, well, no. none. yeah. Basically, and we're talking about 20,000 a year at least. Wreaking havoc. The fentanyl fentanyl deaths. Um, Even though, sorry, where am I up to? Meanwhile, federal marijuana legalisation has been stopped in its tracks, in part because of the complexities of adopting banking regulation and criminal justice reforms to accompany legal weed, even though public opinion are on board with legalisation. However... Under the Federal Controlled Substances Act, marijuana is still classified, I did that, as Schedule 1. Rescheduling marijuana for research was an oft-repeated promise of Biden's presidential campaign. Biden's call for a review of marijuana's scheduling could dramatically reshape federal policy and ultimately clear the way for legalisation, but only if it is removed from the law entirely, not just rescheduled as a Schedule II drug. This would be the piece that would allow all the dominoes to fall in place for nationwide legalisation, with sales to adults over 21 without a prescription, allowing banks to do business with the cannabis industry and more. In the meantime, there are several pieces of federal legalisation or legislation attempting to address the myriad issues around cannabis. Yeah, we might skip those because they're yeah, sort of they include detailed. So, yeah, opportunity but, to reinvest, secure and fair enforcement, states reform act, and the cannabis administration and opportunity act. I mean, all anything positive is worth supporting. But indeed, here's the one that the feedback was um, making sure that we mentioned. Didn't Biden fire people for smoking weed? Yes, dozens of young White House staffers got a very nasty surprise back in 2021 when they were dismissed after background checks due to admit, admitted marijuana use. The Biden administration initially indicated that recreational use of cannabis would not be disqualifying. Employee conduct guidelines were also updated to potentially 
de- deny security clearance to people who invested in cannabis companies. Quote, wait, so I do my job at the... Do, do, I, do I get my job at the White House back? One former staffer asked on Twitter on Thursday. Well, that remains to be seen. I thought President Biden was tough on crime and specifically anti-weed. So how did he come to support cannabis um, reform? Over his nearly four decades as a senator from Delaware, he's been around a long while, old Joe, Biden was a prominent Democratic leader in spearheading America's war on drugs. He has long defended his record of being, quote, tough on crime, including advocating for large increases in federal funding for the drug war and enacting federal policies that disproportionately criminalised low-level drug offences. So it's not it, a rosy record. No, it? and his 180-degree turns have actually turned into... It's virtually like a, a spinning top, yeah? He's been not just 180 degrees, but 360 degrees. Yeah, he's been going round and round and round in his um, statements to the public yeah. on, on what he believes, changed his mind... But what it does show in a lot of ways is that people can change their minds. True. And maybe that's what he needs to say is, I have changed my mind because yeah, and his wife, things yeah. have been shown to be not as I thought they were. Yeah. Well, and that powerful, would be yeah. a very adult thing to say. God yeah. forbid that we should but have politicians with yeah. an adult personality. <laughs> but it's really quite important that people show that they their thinking has changed and the development of uh, rational drug policies is occurring because the research is proving to be um, totally against what's been purported to be true 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Well, as we say every week, the, where is the evidence of the success of prohibition? You know, yep. um, there isn't any, even by its own criteria of no, success. So doesn't measure up. Anyway, under the Reagan administration, um, Joe worked to create the Office of National Drug Control Policy and in a now infamous 1989 television interview at the height of the Just Say No era, then Senator Biden criticised the plan from President George H.W. Bush to escalate the war on drugs as not going far enough. Quite, <sighs> quite frankly, the president's plan is not tough enough <laughs> or bold enough or imaginative enough to meet the crisis at hand, Joe said, calling not just for harsher punishments for drug dealers, but to, quote, hold every drug user accountable. Other examples of punitive legislation that Biden helped to enact include the Comprehensive Crime Control Act, which expanded federal drug trafficking penalties and civil asset forfeiture, which I always thought was appalling that you had to prove that that car... Was not the proceeds of of, crime, not bought by the proceeds of crime. Selling pot or something. Allowing police to seize someone's property without proving the person is actually guilty of a crime. He sponsored and co-authored the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986, which ratcheted up penalties for drug crimes and created a massive sentencing disparity between crack and powder cocaine, fueling significant racial disparities in incarceration. I mean, that that really hurt the African-American community far harsher. The penalties for crack were, you know, ten times tougher in some cases than um, powdered cocaine. And 1994's Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act, partly written by Joe Biden, imposed harsher sentences and increased prison funding, contributing to the growth of the US prison population from the 1990s throughout the 2000s. But in later years, Biden softened his stance on drugs. In 2007, he backed the Second Chance Act, 
which provides monitoring and counselling services to former prison inmates. In his last few years in the Senate, he supported eliminating the sentencing disparity between crack and powder cocaine. In 2020, the number of Americans who supported legalising cannabis reached a record high, according to Gallup, with 68% supporting marijuana legalisation. When Biden launched his presidential campaign, his platform reflected the nation's changing attitude towards cannabis, with support for marijuana decriminalisation, rescheduling and expungements for low-level cannabis convictions. However, even as he campaigned on marijuana reform, Biden contemplated the positive possible negative effects of cannabis legalisation. Uh, quote, the truth of the matter is there's not uh, nearly been enough evidence that has been acquired as to whether or not it's a gateway drug, oh, no. Biden said, <laughs> at a town hall in November 2019. Biden has evolved a tremendous amount has uh, evolved a tremendous amount to get to the point where he would take this significant an action, Streckel says. And I think this move helps to find a pathway to 60 or more votes in the US Senate to agree on cannabis legalisation packets. That would be truly um, substantial reform. wouldn't yeah. it? Genuine Coleman... Oh, sorry, Janine Coleman. <laughs> Genuine. <laughs> Janine Coleman, a long-time cannabis policy activist who serves as executive director of the advocacy group... Uh, Origins Council, points to a change in international treaty uh, known as the Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs of 1961 as the reason behind Biden's evolving stance on marijuana. In December 2020, the United Nations Commission on Narcotic Drugs voted to change the scope of control of cannabis and cannabis-related substances following recommendations by the World Health Organization in 2019. WHO came out with findings that cannabis does indeed have medical use and value, Coleman says, so they recommended that the UN Commission consider rescheduling the 1961 convention. About time. Well, yes, I mean, that's what we often quote, Jeff, mm. when we're referring to the extent of the uh, war on drugs yep. and how long it's been lasting. It's since 1961, 61. even though the war on drugs didn't officially start till 72. Well, it was 11 President years Nixon earlier. formalised yeah, it. Mm. That uh, the United Nations single convention was in, uh, brought into being. Anyway, so they recommended that the UN Commission consider rescheduling the 1961 Convention. That prompted a process for signatories to the treaty, including the United States, to review the scheduling of cannabis. Quote, so it's not totally coming out of nowhere, Coleman says. It's actually something that got prompted about two years ago. So is this a ploy to get voter support for the midterm elections or is it a real shift in policy direction? Nishant Reddy, CEO and founder of A Golden State and Satya Capital, has served as an advisor to Senator Cory Booker, a Democrat New Jersey, on cannabis policy. Reddy was pleasantly but not entirely surprised by Biden's announcement. He's quoted as saying, we're just a few weeks away from midterm elections, so I do, do think there's a little bit of strategic political play with this, Reddy says. 
That being said, it's an exciting step in the right direction for those who are facing the negative consequences of unfair policing regarding cannabis. It's true. Attorney David Holland, a partner in the Prince Lobel Thai LLP and the executive director of Empire State Normal, sees it as by moving towards cementing his progressive legacy rather than attempting to gain voter support. Quote, Biden doesn't stand to gain anything by it per se. This is only the midterm. He's got another couple of years to go, Holland said. I think he's trying to align himself with progressive politics to undo at least some of the harms of the drug war and to set up a platform for two years from now that shows him to be a leader in causes relating to equity, justice, economic development and so on. News of the pardons is dominating media coverage, but Holland says the most meaningful part of Biden's announcement is the review and possible change in the federal status of cannabis as a controlled substance. Quote, he's setting the stage for future action. That's from Holland. There is definitely a paradigm shift coming over the next two years and going into the 2024 election. Yeah, look, I think that's a lengthy but comprehensive overview of Biden's legacy and change over four decades in his attitude. Long, you know, better late than never. Well, and the truth is I think that people are looking at, presidents in particular in the United States do want their status in history to be recorded as, yeah, they want to leave a legacy of some kind that is momentous. Um, And unfortunately, Donald Trump's legacy (laughs) is going to be one of (laughs) internal division, yes, and of um, basically civil unrest. not almost destroyed the republic. Indeed, almost destroying the whole democratic republic, and that really is not something you want to be considered as being remembered for. No, I wouldn't have thought so. Look, we'll play a quick track and then we'll wrap up the show. This is Everclear and Heroin Girl. I used to know a girl She had two pierced nipples and a black tattoo We drink that Mexican beer We level Mexican food Yeah, I wish I could Girl that you would never leave Yeah, yeah 
Right, that was Everclear and Heroin Girl. It's 10 minutes to noon, and we're in the home stretch of this week's News from the Drug War Front with Jeff and Marion from Studio One, 2XX People Powered Radio, 98.3 FM. Uh, I thought we'd finish up with this piece um, about the Royal Navy seizing $17 million worth of drugs in the Arabian Sea. The British Royal Navy. Oh, British Royal Navy. Um, This is from wildnews.com, October the 10th. The British Royal Navy and its warship HMS HMS Montrose recently confiscated illicit drugs worth more than $17 million from a boat in the Arabian Sea. The warship and its crew managed to seize hundreds of kilograms of crystal methamphetamine from a a small local ship after a gruelling six-hour-long operation. Initially, the crew members aboard the frigate sent a helicopter to track the suspected boat. After the boat's movement raised further suspicion, the Royal Marines from 42 Commando took charge and dropped sail in the choppy waters. Quote, HMS Montrose pounced after a Wildcat helicopter located and tracked the suspect Dow until the frigate was in range to launch her boarding teams in her boats, the Navy said in a statement. So the Navy's attacking a small little boat. Yeah, most peculiar. I wonder if it's a justification for their presence in the area, Jeffrey. I was just wondering, trying to visualise where the Arabian Sea is. Is that on the uh, Indian Ocean? Sorry, Indian... Indian Ocean side of um, Africa and the Middle East, or is it on the Mediterranean side? I'd have to check an atlas on that one, Matt. Yeah, no, (laughs) I I can't visualise where it is. I'm just wondering if it justifies the the presence of the Royal Navy in that area, which is kind of fairly close, if my geography is right, fairly close to... um, Trouble the spots Crimean in the Middle East. Sea, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. So I say we're not wasting money. No, on no, our, no. We're, we're not. We're doing having nothing to do with the drugs. war between yeah. Ukraine and yeah. Putin. We're actually looking for drugs. Anyway, the article goes on. The initial search yielded some drugs, but the Marines prodded further and managed to find a hidden compartment where approximately eight hundred and seventy kilograms of crystal methamphetamine was stashed. Quote, the Royal Marines from 42 Commando, the UK's military specialists in these operations, seized control of the vessel in choppy conditions before sailors moved in to search the craft for any illegal cargo. While overhead, the Wildcat observed proceedings provided cover for those scouring the Dow for her illicit cargo, it added. (laughs) The National Crime Agency priced the seized drugs at around $17 million. Quote, disrupting terrorist organisations, criminals and their funding lines is key to keeping the UK and the rest of the world safe, (laughs) said Commander Claire Thompson overseeing the operation. That's their justification for being in the area. Notably, HMS Montrose has been sailing the waters of West Asia, so it's on that side of the Suez Canal. Um, since 2019 and the fifth operation of this year, the frigate has managed to reel narcotics 
uh, real in, I imagine that means, um, narcotics worth $52 million. The frigate is part of a multinational force of 33 nations currently led by the Royal Canadian Navy working in the Gulf region to disrupt criminal and terrorist organisations and their illicit activity. And I think just before... Just before we go, I think I need to apologise for um, collaborating with Neil Young on the needle and the damage done. I might have left Apparently my on. microphone wasn't turned on. Sorry about that. Oh, and I was singing along with, uh, I heard you knocking on the cellar door. Well, I love you, baby, can I have some more? But it was a very meaningful song and it really, yeah, the lyrics really do speak to us. And it, yeah, it's still very realistic. Yeah, I think yeah. it's as powerful as. Always talk about how, what poets, you know, there's, um, there's, the lyrics speak to us and it really moved me, even from when it came out, which was, I think, the early 70s, when I really knew nothing about drugs or about the impact of uh, drugs on uh, Australian society, I'd heard a little about the importation of uh, marijuana but or the small, availability of marijuana, scale, but yeah. yeah, but very small scale and knew nothing much. Anyway, look, the point was I didn't mean to sing along with Neil Young. I <laughs> didn't mistake, mean to upset yeah. anybody or to um, hurt your eardrums by <laughs> by chucking in my two cents worth. Look, before we go, just a quick reminder about the... Um can test health and drug checking service. Oh yes, we'll get the next report next yeah, week. We'll, yeah, we'll have the, the second month's report. Second month's um, data released by ACT Health. It's really quite exciting. The, they've doubled the the numbers of samples, uh, test samples that they've by the sound of it. They've been about a hundred. Yeah. Yep which is really exciting. It and is. It's a free confidential harm reduction service. It's located on the ground floor of the City Community Health Centre at One More Street in Canberra. Uh, it's only open Thursday from 10am till 1pm and Fridays from 6 till 9. And initially it's a six-month um, project. Yeah. And hopefully just because of the importance of it and the just the incontrovertible evidence of what is in drugs that people bring in. Indeed. It, 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 and uh, we look, we just want to encourage people to go to it. The, the uh, community news, Cantes' first month went well with good community uptake. People who attended reported feeling safe and respected and receiving good, clear information. Cantes staff provided 70 health and alcohol and other drug brief interventions to people who attended and 18 samples were disca- discarded. Awesome. No, we fully support it and recommend um, people avail themselves of the service and yes. let's hope it expands and continues forever. Yeah, spread the word spread and encourage word. people to have their drugs checked because Indeed. it's just it's, it's a great service it and is. really like to see it going full time. Oh, it's just so important. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Marion. Yeah, Take care, thank everyone. you, Jeffrey. It's great to Back uh, again next week. be on the air and we'll talk to you next, next week. week. Please look after yourselves. Indeed. Keep each other safe. Stay well. Remember, COVID hasn't finished. No, keep look your mask after, on. In yeah, stay well. Places, yeah. We'll leave it with uh, Golden Brown and... Um, the Stranglers. By the Stranglers, yeah, yeah. yes. <laughs> Remember? <laughs> had a mental block. Yeah. Bye, Bye, everyone.
moisture like sun Lays me down with my mind She runs throughout the night No need to fight Never a frown with golden brown Every time just like the last On her ship tied to the mast Two distant lands takes both my hands Never a frown with golden brown Golden brown, fine attemptress Through the ages she's heading west From far away, stays for a day Never a frown with gold